Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Aaron, for leading us so well. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to four different passages of Scripture. Oh, here in for tonight. Um, if you've been here, you'll know that we're we're looking at this series revival now, asking the question. You know, we don't need eighteen fifty nine again. We need we need something that's fit for purpose for today. And revival always met the needs of the hour. And what are those needs today? And what is the type of revival we need? We're supposed dreaming, hopefully prophetically, in the spirit about what we could be crying to God for and what we need to see right now in revival. And we've covered a load of stuff. We need a, a new Jesus movement, a new prayer movement, a new holiness movement. What, what else have we done? Can you remember? I can hardly remember. Last week was a new unity movement. And tonight I want us to look at how we need a new Christ-like movement. And so there's four scriptures we're going to look at, um, just an introduction. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, and just one verse, and then we're going to 1 John 2 for one verse, and then two longer passages. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, you just listen to it if you don't want to turn to them all. Paul says... Listen to this. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What a statement. I mean, if you were to say that to someone, (laughs) how would that go? (laughs) Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Then over to 1 John, and this is another real hard hitter. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6. 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself or herself also to walk just as he walked. We're to walk just as Jesus walked. How did he walk? Well then Philippians 2, you're familiar with this of course. Um, And we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Just let the scripture flow over you and soak into you as we read it together. Therefore, verse 1, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. One more passage, Galatians 5. You don't have to go uh, too far for this one. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. What does a revival movement look like? And when we're talking about a movement these weeks, I'm not talking about an organization. I've said that before. I'm talking about an organic, spirit-led move right across not just the church, but across society at large. What does a revival movement look like? Well, the answer is very simple. Uh, it, it must be Christ-like. In the context of those scriptures that we've looked at tonight, and we've looked at various facets of what a move of God ought to look like over the weeks, but tonight I want us to consider, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it can't be a movement of the Spirit. It's a movement of some kind, perhaps. But it's not a movement of God if it doesn't look like Jesus. And so the question I'm asking right at the very beginning is, does the church in the 21st century in Ireland and Northern Ireland and in Belfast, does it look like Jesus? Does the church, our church, sound like Jesus? And individually, do we as Christians look like Jesus? Do we sound like Jesus? And I think it's a fitting follow-up from last week when we consider unity and how we behave towards one another, especially in, in our context of Ireland. One respected Bible teacher put it like this. If there's anything that would keep me away from Christ if I was lost, it would be the attitude of Christians toward one another. The attitude of Christians toward one another is what he said would put him off. Our open unity, as we saw last week, is meant to be a testament to the world around that Jesus came in the flesh. Actually, that's the proof of the incarnation. That's what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 23, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and, that, and, and have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus is saying, the proof will be how you love each other, that I actually came in the flesh. And we saw also that it's our love toward each other that makes the difference. First John 4, 12. No one has seen God at any time. God's invisible. Uh, he is spirit. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. So God, the invisible, omnipresent spirit, all of a sudden becomes visible and very present and incarnational when people see that we love each other. And so when that doesn't happen, they don't see God. So how's that going? I think this is probably the biggest hindrance to blessing in the church and in our society. How we as Christians relate to each other. Gandhi, of course, was, was a Hindu. He wasn't a Christian, and yet he admired uh, Jesus and often quoted from the Sermon on the Mount in particular. And there was a missionary in India. You may have heard of him, E. Stanley Jones, 
And uh, he asked the question, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi replied, oh, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So many of your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Three times he says, love one another. Jesus says something once, it's important. Twice, he's really emphasizing it. Three times. We better sit up and listen. There's something crucial here. This is how they'll know that you belong to me, by how you get on with each other, how you deal with each other, even when you disagree, how you relate. There's a guy called Gail D. Irwin who wrote a book, The Jesus Style, and he said this, I was shocked to find that such a statement, that is, love one another, was missing from the great doctrinal statements of denominations, missing from the great systematic theologies, missing from the cradle statements, and most unfortunate, missing from our daily lives. Doesn't that say something? The big books, (laughs) the cradle statements, the confessions, the basis of belief of our big institutionalized churches don't actually feature this one command that Jesus told us you must keep so that the world will know that you follow me and that I have come. Of course, 1 Corinthians 13, it really elaborates for us, doesn't it, that we are nothing without love. I think one of the problems, if you'll allow me to say it, is because we as Christians are opposed to so much immorality that there is in the world, and we're also against false doctrine in the church, we can come across very often as angry. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible does say we should be angry and not sin. But it nowhere tells us that we ought to be defined by our anger. We are to be defined by love. We are to be known for sound doctrine, but even in that, we're meant to be speaking the truth in love. And I would suggest that Christ-likeness is not our emphasis very often in Christianity. Yet it is what we are called to be. We're called to be disciples who follow Jesus. That word disciples just means apprentices. We're to come alongside him and learn how he does it. And that's why we must not just evangelize people. We must disciple people. Because people need to become Christians. Which means little Christs or little anointed ones. And so I want us to consider the fruit of the Spirit tonight. Because I believe the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness because essentially it is Jesus in you. Galatians 2.20 says it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so when you get to Galatians 5, it's not talking about some um, just aping that we do of the personality of Jesus. But we actually are exhibiting his life through us by the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul starts off, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I believe that love actually is all the whole fruit, and these other aspects, remember it's fruit singular, are elements of the love. And actually, if you do a comparison of 
um, Galatians 5, 22, 23 with 1 Corinthians 13, you will see that they both correspond to each other. And so the fruit of the Spirit actually is love being manifested, Christ in you, the outworking of the love and the life of Jesus. It's his life. But there's two fruit. Somebody's going to look at, Michael's going to look at love at the very end of this series. But there's two other fruit mentioned, or descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned here in Galatians 5 that I want to bring to you. And I want you to consider the Christ-likeness in them and, and apply it to our lives. The first is that of gentleness. And the second is kindness. And if you want sort of crash course on Christ-likeness, these are, they're, they're all important, okay, but I don't have time to look at them all tonight. But these are two that I really think we need to emphasize in the light of where the church has gone in recent history. So first of all, let's look at gentleness. And that word gentleness, okay, could also be translated humility or meekness. You remember, the fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of God. It's God's personality displayed in Jesus, manifested in and through us by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just as a side, if you want to recognize whether fruit is of God or not, look for the fruit of the Spirit in that fruit. Also, and this has been very helpful to me, sometimes we struggle at understanding whether we're hearing the voice of God, or whether it's ourselves, or whether it's the devil. Yeah? Well, God's voice has a tone, and his tone is the fruit of the Spirit. He speaks lovingly. He speaks joyfully. He speaks peacefully. He speaks patiently. He speaks faithfully and gently and kindly. And, you know, so all those elements there are ways that we can know when, when fruit is of God and when, when what we're hearing is of God. Do you hear God's voice that way, by the way, in those, in those characteristics? Do you? Because so many of us, even when we read the Bible because of our backgrounds, we hear God harshly. We're drawn to the judgmental things. We feel condemned and criticized when we read the Bible. But very often religion has given us a caricature of God. And when we look at this fruit, we see the way he really is. Did you realize, did you ever know that one of the attributes of God is gentleness? I'm just suggesting this, and I believe in the supernatural, big time. I want to see more of it. But very often we don't get the paratechnics that we're looking for from God. And could it be it's because God's gentle with us? He does do those things, but he is gentle. There's a wonderful verse in the Psalms, 1835, and David says, Your gentleness has made me great. Isn't that an incredible statement? The great King David, and he was the warrior, you know, he was the, the mighty man, the, the one they all looked to as the greatest king of all. But it was God's gentleness that brought him into greatness. There's a, a beautiful graphic description of the gentleness of Messiah prophetically given in Isaiah 40, verse 11. Um, and we read there that, that uh, let me find it for you, um, that God, the, the Lord, the Messiah, takes up the little lambs in his bosom and nestles them. What a picture of gentleness, how Christ deals with his, his flock. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the sin 
that made the devil the devil. Think about that. Pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. If you like, it is the mother of all sins. And within us, it is the tyrant, just like Lucifer in the beginning, that wants to exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Wants to be God or be like God. And if you're not aware of pride in your life tonight, bless you. It's not because of the absence of it. It's because of your ignorance. I'm sorry to break that to you. Um, W. Perkins, who, who lived from 1558 to 1602, said, This is the fruit of pride, to think well of ourselves because we are not proud. <laughs> so if you don't realize that you've got pride deep within your human nature, that could be pride in itself. All of us need, not just at the moment of our conversion to Jesus, but every day we need to come to the foot of the cross. We need to be, be considering ourselves by faith, crucified as we were 2,000 years ago, but we need to reckon it so by faith and see ourselves dead on that cross in our old selves and alive in Christ to his new nature. And it is through that crucifixion and and a consequential humility that we will display this gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is praus, P-R-A-U-S, and it actually means power under control. I love that. Because gentleness is powerful. It is strength under control, Someone put it like this, there is nothing so strong as gentleness, nothing so gentle as real strength. We're not talking about weakness, and though this is translated meekness as well, meekness isn't weakness. This is actually great power, the strength that you maybe naturally have, or even strength before God, but you exhibit control and gentleness. Gentleness can't be weak. In Isaiah 42, verses 2 and 3, we get a prophetic description of Jesus, Messiah. And this is what it says. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He's not a rabble-rouser, and he's not really a big protester, actually. This is most perfectly displayed in Jesus. Humility, meekness, and gentleness. I mean, what was his incarnation other than humility in heaven? He had humility in heaven to say, I'm going and become a babe in a virgin's womb. That was humility even in heaven. Don't think he was just humble when he came here. It was humility in heaven. Philippians 2 that we read talks about his emptying of himself by becoming a man and actually taking the form of a servant. And, and what was his sacrifice on the cross? Only humility, even the death of, of the cross. But even his ascension was a consequence of humility because it says, doesn't it, wherefore God also has highly exalted him. Wherefore, why? Because he humbled himself. He has been exalted and has ascended. 
All Christ was, was humility. And he is actually, I want you to consider this, the embodiment of the humility of God. Did you ever think about that? Satan was proud. God is, God is actually humble. Seen in Christ. He shows us that humility is at the heart of our God. So we need the humility of Christ. And I think if we're going to have a revival, and a revival that we need is a revival in humility. And we perhaps need humility more than anything. William Law said, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. Andrew Murray said, As much as you have of pride within you, so you have the fallen angel alive in you. As much as you have of true humility, so you have the Lamb of God within you. And you know where you get it? From him. The only humility that will do us is the humility of Christ. So you go to him and you say, Lord, I'm full of pride. Would you give me your humility? It's as simple as that. It's the only way to get it. It's not to try and be more humble. We need to ask it from him. How much we need it. There's so much pride in our hearts, in my heart. There's so much pride in our churches. This humility is not a superior attitude. We have a rights-based society today, a rights-obsessed society. And even we as Christians are now demanding our rights of religious liberty, etc. And I'm not, I'm not against religious liberty. But sometimes I think that the way we go about things displays a superior attitude. Humility is to be teachable. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness. It's the opposite of the desire to be preeminent. And it's seen in God incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the Lion of Judah, yet he comes to us as a lamb. And from his own lips he invites us, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the ultimate gentleman. He is the meekest of men. Are we? A boy once asked, Who are the meek? And he thought, or sorry, a boy was once asked, Who are the meek? And he thought to himself for a moment, and then he answered, They are the people who give soft answers to hard questions. We tend to do the opposite, don't we? We give hard answers to soft questions. We can be harsh in our words. And if you think about the ways we try to influence people as the church, you know, towards Christ or towards truth, how do we do it? Sometimes we try to argue them into the kingdom. Can't be done. Someone said, hearts are flowers, they remain open to the softly falling dew, but shut up in the violent downpour of rain. We need gentleness, humility, meekness. The meek shall what? Inherit the earth. If we want to win the world for Jesus, we're going to have to be meek, gentle, humble. Then the second fruit I want you to see is kindness. It's 
something similar, isn't it? But kindness is love in action, really, isn't it? It's the evidence of love. And 1 Corinthians 13, 4 tells us that love suffers long and is kind. Love is patient and kind. We actually read in Romans 2 and verse 4 that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Did you know that? God's kindness, some translations puts it goodness, but really they partner with one another, kindness and goodness. But it is the, it's the kindness of God that brings people to Jesus. F.W. Faber is one of my favorite Christian poets. And he said this, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. Think about that. We all want to be zealous evangelists, zealous Christians. We all want to be eloquent in our deliveries and have great learning. But that doesn't convert anybody like kindness does. Do you know that God is kind to all? He's kind to everyone. Listen to this verse in Luke 6, 35. A lot of people aren't familiar with the latter part of the verse. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And if you want to be looking like your heavenly father, you want to look like his kid, his son or daughter, you're going to have to be kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Look at how Jesus was kind to everyone, even his enemies. And in, in Titus 3 verse 4, Paul describes the coming of Jesus into the world as the kindness and the love of God appearing. That's who he is. Kindness incarnate. Now when we live lives of grace and we really understand what grace is, that's what you will display towards others, kindness. Kindness is the offspring, the fruit of grace. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. When you realize that you've got free grace from God and all that Jesus has done for you, his great kindness. See, it all comes from being overwhelmed by God's goodness that we, we start to exhibit it to others. I love Graham Cook's teaching. And uh, one of the things he says is, don't judge people for their bad behavior, but ask, I wonder how much kindness is necessary to influence that person to God. We don't ask those questions, do we? But when we are overwhelmed with the kindness and love and mercy and goodness of God, it changes our personality, doesn't it? And our character. And so when we overwhelm others with the same kindness and goodness, it will change them. The sun melts ice, so kindness can melt the hardest of hearts and even causes opposition to evaporate. Now, believe it or not, I know I look really young and old, but I've been preaching for hmm, over 25 years anyway. I've been in full-time ministry 25 years, and I've been preaching from when I was about 15 or 16. But I know, and that definitely isn't 25 years old, but I know that very few will ever remember anything that I have said. But they will remember how I am 
Seneca was a Roman philosopher and he said kindness is a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And there used to be a, an ancient writer who once was a Roman slave before the time of Jesus. His name was Publius Sirius and he said you can accomplish by kindness what you cannot do by force. He knew what it was to be forced as a slave. He says you can get people to do stuff with kindness that you'll never do by forcing them. Now I believe that this is revolutionary. I mean, it's so basic Christ-likeness. It's so ABC, Jesus. And yet this is not how we engage very often with the world around us. It's not how the church engages. I mean, how do we treat our enemies? How do we treat those who we disagree with? Who have the opposite moral values to us or who have different political um, persuasions or philosophical outlooks on life? I mean, how do we deal with them? Do we think that arguing with them is going to work? I don't believe anyone was ever argued into the kingdom of God. And that's why I have a bit of a problem with some approaches to apologetics. And I'm not against apologetics in, in totality. But what I'm saying is, we've got to make sure we realize that we cannot argue. It's not a cerebral thing. Though there are things that we need to come to a knowledge of in truth. It's an encounter with God. And one of the greatest encounters people can have with God is when they meet God in you. They meet Jesus in you. A supernatural kindness. An encounter with gentleness. Are we trying to convert people by clever manipulation? Or the force of argument? Are we trying to change the world through the legal system? And I'm not saying we should never go to court for things. And I'm not, I mean, I'm for the Christian Institute. I'm for all these organizations, EA and CARE and all the rest. I'm I'm not saying that. But we need to realize that that is not our, that is not our A-game. It's not. Our A-game is looking like Jesus, sounding like Jesus. Treating people like Jesus. Gentleness and kindness. Come on, are we known for our kindness? Do you know how many people are out there that have no time for God because they've been burnt by the church by Christian family, by Christian employers. That's serious. Abraham Joshua Heskell said this, when I was a young man, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. I know it's cliche, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, just in case you're sitting on the edge of your seat, I'm sure you're not, but thinking, that's what I want. Give it now, Lord. Gentleness. The kindness of Jesus. Want it now? Just a word of warning. If you do want it, the first thing that God will do, really, is he will bring unkind people along your pathway. 
to practice on them. And it's all very lovely when we're sitting here in the church just listening and thinking and romanticizing about Jesus, how kind he was. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Kind to unthankful and ungrateful people. Negative people. People that you could just slap or choke gratefully. But these are wonderful opportunities to be kind. And we need to change our perspective then. We need to see that that's what Jesus is allowing me to have. The privilege. (laughs) And we all want the God encounters. Wham, bam. Give me this blessing. We all want God encounters. We don't want these type of encounters. But these can actually bring the most Christ-likeness. The most fruit into our lives. Used to be a week. I think it was a song. and certainly a poetic verse years ago. If of Jesus Christ their only view may be what they see of him in you. My soul, what do they see? Who you've ever heard of Robert C. Chapman, but Robert C. Chapman was one of the very early brethren pioneer evangelists and missionaries who went across the world. And he said his great aim, I quote, was seeing so many preach Christ and so few live Christ, I will aim to live Christ. So many preach Christ, so few live him. And later on, J.N. Darby, who was a big brethren preacher, he said of Robert C. Chapman, he lives what I teach. Some of you have heard of Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish Presbyterian preacher from Dundee, who died very young, but 29 years of age, but... I think it was at his funeral service or after his death, one was heard to remark, oh, he was the most Jesus-like man I ever knew. That gives me goosebumps. Not out of pride, of course, but what do you want people to remember you for? What do you want your legacy to be? What would you like to hear people say about you when you're dead and gone? So like Jesus. She was so like Jesus. And if that's the case, there's no doubt about it. Two of the things that you will be is gentle. And kind. And if we are ever going to see a move of God here in Northern Ireland and the whole of Ireland and the United Kingdom, we're going to need to see a more gentler, meek, and humble church, a more kinder demeanor and voice. Let's pray. I'm going to hand over to Tim in a moment or two. And I am deeply convicted by this. Don't think that I'm standing up here six foot above contradiction. 
Remember that course years ago to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask. Now, we sing these things, but really, you know, is that all you ask? You know, if God came to me and said, David, I'm going to hide you in a corner somewhere and you'll never see a pulpit again and nobody will ever listen to your preaching and nobody will ever pat you in the back again and say, well, that was good, I enjoyed that. But you'll be like me. You'll be like Jesus. Would that be enough? Or do we want more? Do we want something more? Jesus is enough. So just in the quietness before we do whatever Tim um, leads us and instructs us to do in a few moments, just in this quietness. I mean, don't wrestle with your pride, okay? Don't don't be starting to analyze it and dissect it and ask about where does that come from and all the rest. If if the Lord takes you on that journey sometime, that's okay, but that's not the journey for right now. The journey for right now is just to name it and claim it. <laughs> name and claim that. That's my pride. Lord it's not like you it doesn't look like Jesus and I give it up to you and I reckon it is nailed to the cross and I pray that you'll help me Lord but I ask you now I want to receive your humility Jesus I want your meekness and gentleness I want your kindness and I pray that you'll help me to be able to exhibit that to others so that they may see Jesus in me Lord, we are so helpless and hopeless and bankrupt without you. And so often we try to do it without you. And we think we're doing it with you because we're talking about the things and naming the right things and quoting the verses and singing the songs and all the rest. But so often we're moving in the power of the flesh and then somebody comes in with an uppercut, metaphorically or literally, and then the flesh rises because we're in the flesh. Lord Jesus, you taught us that which is of the flesh is flesh. And Lord, we know that before we see Jesus, and that was such a blessing to sing that song, when I stand in glory, I will see. Your word says we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Lord, may we have a foretaste of that right now as we gaze upon Christ right now. As we see how unchristlike we may be in the natural, but as we behold him, the glory of the Lord, that we might be changed from glory to glory into the same image by the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we know what we are. I know what David Legg is without Jesus. 
But Lord, I know what I can be with Jesus in me and through me. So all of us, we just come and lay ourselves down before you afresh at the foot of the cross and we say, not I, but Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Not I, but come and take up your place in me, Lord. Come and live through me, Jesus, and show your love and your kindness to all people. May you show your love and kindness to people who don't belong to my religion. May you show your love and kindness through me to people who don't have my sexuality. May you show your love and kindness and gentleness through me to people that I disagree with politically, to people who annoy the life out of me, to people who are my enemies. They make themselves my enemy. But let me show the love and kindness of Jesus so that I can bless those who curse me and pray for those who despitefully use me and say all manner of evil against me falsely. For your sake, help me to do this, Lord. And we're not saying we don't need to have boundaries in our lives. We very often do. I'm not saying that. But even where there are boundaries, may they be done in gentleness and kindness. Not out of bitterness and resentment. Lord, help. Thank you that through you we are more than conquerors. Make us conquerors of kindness. That might make a difference. May we have a Holy Ghost outpouring of gentleness and kindness upon the church in Ireland. In Jesus' name.